executive producer Isaac Saul. This is Tangle. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the Tangle Podcast, the place we get views from across the political spectrum, some independent thinking, and a little bit of my take. I'm your host, Isaac Saul, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the mass shooting in Maine. Happened last week, some details have unfolded. We're going to talk about what we now know and share some responses from the right and the left about that story. One quick note before we jump into today's podcast. Tomorrow, we are going to be doing a special Friday edition on what Israel's options are going forward and why all of them are bad. Uh, And then I'm also going to be answering a really common question that I got from people, which is, where can I go to learn more about this conflict? I've put together a list of resources I think are really valuable, some that I've used, some that have been recommended to me, and I'm going to pass them on to people who have been asking. That will come out in our subscribers-only Friday edition tomorrow of the newsletter. If you want to get that in your inbox, you need to go to retangle.com and become a member. All right, with that out of the way, we'll jump in today with some quick hits. First up, Egypt allowed hundreds of foreign passport holders and injured Palestinians to cross its border from Gaza yesterday the first opportunity for civilians to leave the Strip since Israel's strikes began three weeks ago. An estimated 600 Americans remain in Gaza. Number two, a measure to expel Representative George Santos, the Republican from New York, from Congress, was soundly rejected last night by a 179 to 213 vote, with dozens of Democrats joining most Republicans in opposition. Number three, an estimated 4,000 teachers and school employees went on strike in Portland, Oregon yesterday, canceling school for 45,000 students. The staff is protesting oversized classes, low pay, and a lack of resources. Number four, Donald Trump Jr., the son of the former president, testified in his father's civil fraud trial on Wednesday and argued that he had no direct involvement in financial statements his family's business gave to banks and insurers. Number five, the Federal Reserve left interest rates unchanged yesterday but remained open to another hike in December. Separately, Toyota raised the wages of its non-unionized factory workers after strikes at GM, Ford, and Stellantis led to pay increases. We're learning details about what officials are calling a mass casualty event playing out in Lewiston, Maine, home to Bates College, about 45 minutes north of Portland, Maine. Law enforcement sources there say at least 16 people are dead and dozens more injured. A bowling alley came under fire and there are additional reports of shots fired at a local bar. A manhunt is currently underway for the suspect in last night's deadly mass shooting in Maine. The attack killed at least 18 people and injured more than a dozen others. Police say the suspect targeted two separate locations. The first was a bowling alley. The other was a bar and grill. And as we continue reporting, police are urging people in the area to shelter in place as they search for the person responsible. The manhunt over in Maine. The suspect behind the mass shooting found dead near a river. Authorities just wrapped up a press conference. 
On Wednesday, October 25th, an army reservist killed 18 people and injured 13 others at a bowling alley and bar in Lewiston, Maine. After a two-day manhunt, the shooter was found dead with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. His body was found at the recycling facility where he worked. A quick editor's note before we jump into this story. Tangle does not name mass shooters because of the well-documented contagion effect. We also try to share limited information about the shooter and their alleged motives where possible for the same reasons, and we typically wait several days after a mass shooting to report on it, as the information in the first hours and days after these events is typically unreliable. This mass shooting was the 36th mass killing in the United States this year, according to a database maintained by the Associated Press in USA Today. The database measures mass killings as incidents where four or more people, excluding the offender, were killed within a 24-hour time frame. Three months before the shooting, members of the gunman's Army Reserve Unit reported him for erratic behavior and the Army determined that he shouldn't have a weapon or handle ammunition. The suspect underwent a medical evaluation because of his behavior while training at the U.S. Military Academy in July. In September, his unit requested a health and welfare check on him. Before the shooting, he had made threats against the base and other soldiers, and his family members reported that he had recently been hearing voices, though it remains unclear why he targeted the bowling alley. According to law enforcement, all of the suspect's guns had been purchased legally. ATF Special Agent Jim Ferguson said there were a lot more than three weapons recovered, though he did not specify their makes or models. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives also told CBS News that the suspected gunman had tried to purchase a silencer at a main gun shop a few months ago but was denied. The suspect responded affirmatively to an ATF form asking if he had ever been adjudicated as a mental defective or ever been committed to a mental institution. Maine has a so-called yellow flag law, which allows police to ask a judge to force someone to relinquish their guns and block them from buying firearms if the court deems them a threat to themselves or others. However, the law requires a medical professional to determine that the person poses a risk after they have been taken into protective custody by police. If, in fact, the suspect was hospitalized for two weeks for mental illness, that should have triggered the yellow flag law and he should have been separated from his weapons, Maine Senator Susan Collins, a Republican, said. New House Speaker Mike Johnson, the Republican from Louisiana, pushed back against calls to swiftly pass new gun laws following the shooting. At the end of the day, the problem is the human heart. It's not guns. It's not the weapons, Johnson said. At the end of the day, we have to protect the right of the citizens to protect themselves, and that's the Second Amendment. And that's why our party stands so strongly for that. This is not the time to be talking about legislation. President Biden's deputy press secretary, Andrew Bates, said the administration rejects the offensive accusation that gun crime is prevalent in the United States because of Americans' hearts. Gun crime is uniquely high in the United States because congressional Republicans have spent decades choosing the gun industry's lobbyists over the lives of innocent Americans, Bates said. Today, we're going to share some reactions to the shooting from the left and the right, and then my take. First up, we'll start with what the left is saying. The left is despondent about the shooting, calling it a uniquely American tragedy. Some say Congress should pass more stringent gun control laws that would outlaw weapons like the one used in the shooting. Others reflect on the experience of living through this latest mass death event in the United States. The Bangor Daily News editorial board said Congress needs to save Americans from gun violence. 
No legislation is going to end all gun violence in Maine or around the country, certainly not with millions of guns already in circulation and with the fundamental and undeniably important right for individuals to bear arms, the board said. All rights are limited and inevitably must be balanced against others, however. It is possible and necessary to better balance gun rights with the right for everyone to not be brutally murdered while simply going about their lives. We ourselves have been hesitant at times to lean strongly into some potential gun reforms, seeking to find the constructive middle path amid entrenched sides of the debate. This is not the time for moderation, however, the board said. It is time to do the obvious thing that can save lives and preserve Second Amendment rights at the same time. It is time to ban high-capacity magazines of more than 10 rounds. The Los Angeles Times editorial board said the shooter fits a profile. He is American and he has a gun. It's human nature at a time like this to pick through bits of incomplete information in search of patterns that characterize mass shooters to understand what kind of person commits such horrendous crimes and why, the board said. But there is no consistent profile. Perpetrators are Americans of all stripes, committing a peculiarly American crime. The one thing they have in common is guns, which are more plentiful than ever in the United States. The COVID-19 pandemic and unrest in the wake of George Floyd's murder in 2020 helped spur a huge spike in gun sales. At the same time, the U.S. Supreme Court has been rolling back weapons restrictions, in effect turning the Second Amendment into a national suicide pact, the board said. Continuing on this path means we will join the people of Lewiston and too many other communities to name, locked down in our homes, in fear of guns, and the wide variety of our fellow Americans ready to use them against us. In the Daily Beast, Michael Rock, a professor at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, who studies mass shootings, wrote about what it was like to live through one. Studying mass public shootings can be challenging emotionally. I distinctly recall sitting in my office with a student researcher, painstakingly scrutinizing stories detailing the anger and despair, and planning to take lives indiscriminately, and the fear instilled in affected communities. It would wear us down. At the same time, there was some degree of distance, Rock said. But now, the pain and anguish we read about on computer screens has reached our community. The scenes we are all now accustomed to seeing on our television screens as news of another unthinkable attack scrolls across chirons my neighbors and I saw out of our windows and on the streets. In some ways, it still feels as if all this is playing out somewhere else, to people we've never met. But now, somehow, the terrible stories I've been studying for years are now the stories of people in my life, Rock said. As I continue to share my thoughts on the attack, including my assessment of the facts as they relate to my scholarship, it all feels surreal to meld these two worlds, academic research and personal tragedy. All right, that is it for the left is saying, which brings us to what the right is saying. The right is also saddened by the school shooting, but argued it was a product of institutional failure and not guns. Some say Maine and other states should focus on enacting laws that would force the mentally ill into hospitals as proactive measure. Others suggest there was little that could have been done to prevent this particular shooting. In the Bangor Daily News, Matthew Gagnon argued our institutions failed us before the Lewiston shooting. By any sober evaluation, it seems apparent that there was a catastrophic human failure here, not necessarily one of law, Gagnon said. In response, many people have focused on restricting gun access. I will not blithely dismiss that discussion. There is simply no getting around the fact that America has a lot of guns, and it would not be intellectually honest to dispute that the mass availability of guns makes attacks like this easier to commit. Were there to be a wholesale gun confiscation in America, there would doubtless be fewer attacks like this. 
But no one, even gun control advocates, is proposing that. If they did, it would be both politically impossible to enact and practically impossible to enforce. Instead, the ideas you hear most of the time relate to banning specific gun types, like the dreaded assault weapon. America has tried that before in the past, and the impact on gun violence was negligible, even according to government studies, Gagnon said. In reality, the inability of society to properly monitor and manage people experiencing mental health crises is behind many problems. The New York Post editorial board said Maine needs red flag laws and better ways to commit the mentally ill. How on earth did this alleged killer spend time in a mental hospital and then months later get access to deadly weapons, the board asked. Even to the most untrained eye, he is the literal textbook example of a person who shouldn't be allowed to have access to a firearm. His case, as reported, is also proof positive that states need strong and voluntary commitment laws uncluttered by red tape and red flag laws around guns to boot. The state must intervene by making sure the sick person's getting the treatment they need and keeping them totally isolated from any and all guns. Imagine if cops, prosecutors, and mental health workers had acted swiftly to put him back in a mental hospital and not let him leave. His case, like those of so many other mass shooters, indicts national and state mental health authorities. In Hot Air, Jazz Shaw wrote, Did we learn anything from the main shooter? Probably not. The shooter truly seems to have slipped through the cracks, and this was a case of unfortunate timing more than any glaring gap in the safety precautions that are already in place, Shaw said. There were clearly people in the community who had seen warning signs because there were some who told police about the shooter's claims of hearing voices as soon as the manhunt and investigation began. But they apparently never reported that to authorities, or if they did, they didn't raise serious enough concerns for anyone to get a warrant and come remove any firearms from his home. If there was no legal impediment to the firearm purchase at the time, and no compelling argument to take it away from him beforehand, what could have been done to stop him short of assigning him a babysitter? The automatic democratic response to these events is simply to ban all guns, but that's what they always say, and criminals don't tend to pay attention to gun laws. While red flag laws remain controversial among many Second Amendment supporters, Maine already had the equivalent of such a law in place, and it didn't work. All right, that is it for the left and the right are saying, which brings us to my take. One of the most tragic things about this story is how many people did the right thing only to get this outcome. The suspect's family, children, and even his fellow soldiers reported him to authorities. I don't think people fully understand how difficult that is. Going to the police or a mental health institution in an effort to get a loved one committed or to have their rights limited takes a great deal of courage and selflessness, and it guarantees pain. Yet they did it. They alerted the people they were supposed to, and they tried to put the suspect in a system that would stop him before he committed an act of violence. We're still learning about how and why that didn't work. One key difference between Maine's yellow flag law and other states' red flag laws is that, under Maine's law, a person can't simply be reported to a judge or the police and have their guns confiscated. They need to be taken into police custody, and then a medical professional needs to determine that the person is a risk. This suspect was reported by family, by friends, and by fellow Army reservists for making threats, talking about committing a mass shooting and hearing voices. He appears to have been institutionalized prior to all of that as well. He even acknowledged the institutionalization while filling out a form to buy a silencer. But again, this is based on what we know right now. 
He was never arrested or put into custody. He was never examined by a medical professional in that context and never legally determined to be a threat to himself or others. That specific difference in the yellow flag law appears to be crucial. In general, as is all too common, there are few refrains from the right and the left whenever we face another story like this, increasingly familiar and increasingly heartbreaking, that I don't think I lend much credence to. A lot of people on the right like to point out that these mass shootings, while they receive a lot of press, are a tiny fraction of gun violence and gun deaths in the United States. The majority are suicides or shootings with handguns, not rifles. The implication is that because of the proportions, maybe we shouldn't fret so much legislatively. But that argument ignores the outsized impact these events have on society. They fray and fracture our communities. They destroy people's sense of security. They make us more paranoid, more anxious, and less trusting. On the morbid balance sheet next to suicides and handgun homicides, the raw body count produced by these events might be lower, but the psychological impact seems to me to be far more significant. A lot of people on the left like to point out that there is no place in civil society for weapons like the kind often used in these shootings, that is, weapons of war, often semi-automatic rifles. And while that conclusion is easy to make in the wake of these events, the difficult and confounding reality is that banning these kinds of weapons has already been tried and was not very effective. There is very little evidence weapon-focused bans like that are good policy. On top of semi-automatic rifles like AR-15s being far and away the most popular guns in America for being easy to use, they also make up a small fraction of gun deaths. And like it or not, there is the reality that bans on such weapons are probably unconstitutional too. So, my solutions? Again, we've had so many shootings that I've written about them many times before, so none of these ideas will be new. One big one that is especially relevant here is that, as many on the right argue, we do need to enforce the laws we already have. To use cars as an analogy, one of the best ways to prevent deaths from car accidents is speed limits and seatbelt laws. Because we enforce those laws, people tend to follow them and deaths from car accidents go down. But if nobody ever feared getting a speeding ticket or getting pulled over for not wearing their seatbelt, the impact would be negligible. This is true of gun laws too. To extend the car analogy, which I think is useful, we should also use licensing to create more friction. Cars kill more Americans every day than guns, but we've taken steps to increase the safety of their usage that we could also apply to gun ownership. And this is probably where art and Second Amendment activists and I diverge the most. But just as when getting a driver's license, you should have to go through training to get a gun. You should have to pass a test. You should have to get a license. That friction will create a little bit more time until someone's ready to purchase a gun, and it will also signal to both potential criminals and well-intended gun buyers that they have to submit themselves to some scrutiny to purchase a weapon, and it signals serious responsibility of owning a gun. It also allows sellers to take a look at a potential buyer. Imagine, for a moment, the main shooter having a delusional episode while trying to pass a firearm safety course. We'd be much better off. All of this, to me, is good. The upside is way bigger than the potential downside. Part of following the laws on the books includes actually using our background check system the way it was intended. Currently, it is riddled with flaws. Local police, the military, federal and state courts, hospitals, and treatment providers regularly fail to send criminal or mental health records to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System when they are supposed to. In theory, nobody who's been convicted of a crime, committed to a mental institution, gotten a dishonorable discharge, or has a record of drug addiction should be able to buy a gun with ease. But these failures mean licensed gun dealers regularly run a clean background check on someone who should be caught by the system. It also seems clear that this person was suffering from some kind of paranoid delusions. That is not something that should be swept under the rug. 
If there are legislators who want to make this a mental health issue, we should embrace that. Why not? It is clear the systems we have in place to treat people with mental illness are inadequate. Just look at our rates of violence, suicide, depression, anxiety, and addiction. These are all blaring red signals that we are not treating such people adequately. Any legislative momentum to address this should be applauded, not ridiculed. And directionally, laws like the one in Maine are good policy too. Even though it didn't work here, that doesn't mean it is a bad policy. We'll surely find out someone, somewhere, or some group of people made a bad decision that allowed the Maine shooter to commit this crime. Indeed, we already know that law enforcement opted not to search his home because they thought it was too dangerous to engage him, a stunning, confusing, and disheartening revelation. All this is to say, we don't have to agree on everything to be able to find solutions. Some have already been implemented and need to be acted on. Others are moderate ideas that could go a long way and garner broad public support. An action, an acceptance of the status quo, a belief that nothing can be done, is the truly only unacceptable path forward. All right, that is it for my take, which brings us to your questions answered. This one's from Mark in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mark said, why is Matt Gates not being vilified in the press? Instead, he seems to be given credit for the resulting speaker. Should we believe Gates had any plans when he threw the wrench in the works? So Gates has been getting vilified in the press a lot, actually, I think. Here are two quotes we ran in Tangle, both from right-leaning outlets during the interval when the House went without a speaker. After Kevin McCarthy was ousted, the Wall Street Journal editorial board likened it to Republicans cutting off their own heads. Members in safe seats can fuel their own fundraising and careers by claiming to fight against all and sundry without doing the hard work to accomplish what they claim to be fighting for. Mr. Gates is the prototype of this modern performance art as he raises money for a potential run for Florida governor, the board said. Following Jim Jordan's failure to win enough votes to be elected speaker, Noah Rothman said in National Review that the right wing of the party was weaponizing party loyalty to make a name for themselves in the press. Those Republicans who have little or no use for the party as an institution are weaponizing the loyalty to it among those who do, Rothman said. MAGA types like Representative Anna Paulina Luna and Matt Gates are throwing decorum overboard by singling out their colleagues for condemnation in social media and summoning a mob to reinforce the implied conclusion that this leadership election is a career-defining vote. And that was from right-leaning papers. Time and time again, Gates and the rest of the House Freedom Caucus have been excoriated in the press for seeking attention, halting normal government for narcissism or fundraising, and having no plan for what to do after getting rid of McCarthy. In Tangle, those criticisms have been in the quotes we pulled as well as in my take. Against that backdrop, though, Gates and company have been given credit for getting a more right-leaning speaker elected. That certainly doesn't erase all the errors they made and the criticism they faced leading up to that point, but it is a fact that there'd be no Speaker Mike Johnson without a House Freedom Caucus and House representatives exercising their individual power and party leadership being less centralized is something I've consistently favored in my writing. Both of these things can be true. Gates deserves credit for leveraging his position to get Johnson elected speaker, and Gates deserves blame for halting all legislative activity for a month or so in order to get there. Whether you think Gates deserves credit or condemnation for his actions really depends on whether Speaker Johnson ends up shepherding the House in a way you support. If all of this just leads to another government shutdown and continued dysfunction, I think it'll be viewed universally negatively. If Johnson folds to Biden and Senate Democrats on important issues, I think many conservatives will feel betrayed and that this was a mistake. 
And if Johnson manages to get major concessions from Biden and Democrats on spending or social issues, I think Gates's image on the right will become even more positive. All right, that is it for our reader question today, which brings us to our under the radar section. High profile Democratic politicians are beginning to jockey for position in a post Biden world. A group of senators and governors are starting to raise their national profile in what many expect to be 2028 presidential bids or jockeying for position if Biden unexpectedly drops out of the 2024 race. Along with Representative Dean Phillips, who is challenging Biden directly, Governors Gavin Newsom from California, Josh Shapiro from Pennsylvania, J.B. Prickster from Illinois, and Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan have all traveled to swing states or launched national political groups recently. Senator Cory Booker, the Democrat from New Jersey, has $10 million on hand for a Senate race he could transfer to a presidential race. And Representative Ro Khanna from California recently debated Republican presidential nominee Vivek Ramaswamy in New Hampshire. Vice President Kamala Harris is focused on abortion rights and touring college campuses. Axios has a story about these big names jockeying for that position. There's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, next up is our numbers section. In a survey of 10,000 voters living in rural areas across the U.S., the percentages say they support a ban on military-style assault weapons is 52%. In the same survey, the percentage who say they support a complete ban on the purchase of firearms for Americans younger than 21 is 67%. The percentage of mass public shooters who are male, according to a 2021 report by National Criminal Justice Reference Service, is 98%. The percent decrease in the odds of a mass public shooting occurring in states requiring a permit to purchase a firearm is 60%. The average percent decrease in fatalities during a mass shooting in states that have banned large-capacity magazines is 38%. The number of gun deaths per 100,000 people in 2021, according to the Pew Research Center, is 14.6. The number of gun deaths per 100,000 people in 1974, the highest for any year recorded, was 16.3. The increase in gun sales that the owner of a gun store located 10 miles north of Lewiston reported in the days following the shooting was 500%. All right, that is it for our numbers section, which brings us last but not least to our Have a Nice Day story. In a relieving turn of events, a two-year-old girl who had gone missing in Newberry County, South Carolina, was found safe and sound after an intensive search effort. The young child had last been seen at approximately 3 p.m., nestled beside her mother, but was reported missing later in the day. Then, around 6 p.m., a deer hunter in the area heard the cries of the missing child and placed an emergency 911 call to alert authorities to the child's location. Newberry County 911 operators sprang into action, pinpointing the hunter's location and transmitting it to the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division helicopter and the county's dedicated first responders who were already en route. The hunters and the missing two-year-old were found safe and unharmed in the dense forest. In a statement, the sheriff's office expressed their relief and emphasized that the two-year-old girl's safe rescue was truly miraculous. Sunny Skies has the story and there's a link to it in today's episode description. All right, everybody, that is it for today's podcast. A quick reminder, if you want to hear from us tomorrow, you need to go to retangle.com forward slash membership and become a Tangle member. There are over 12,000 Tangle members now and they love it. They they never leave. Our, our churn rate is like less than 1% because that's how good it is to be a member. So 
come hang out, come check it out, get a membership. And if you do tomorrow, you'll get our exclusive Friday edition where I'm going to talk about the options Israel has in front of them and also share a bunch of resources to learn more about this conflict. Hopefully we'll see you then. If not, we'll be back here in your ears on Monday. Have a good weekend. Peace. Our podcast is written by me, Isaac Saul, and edited by John Law. Our script is edited by Ari Weitzman, Bailey Saul, and Sean Brady. The logo for our podcast was designed by Magdalena Bakova, who's also our social media manager. Music for the podcast was produced by Diet75. For more on Tangle, please go to readtangle.com and check out our website.